Hello and welcome to my office. I'm Carrie Lorenz. Thanks for joining me in conversations with fearless leaders from around the world to discuss the mechanics of high performance, success and failure, and what it takes to achieve more than you ever thought possible. Through the conversation ahead, I hope to challenge, inform, and inspire you to move fearlessly to higher levels of performance and to go further, faster. And that conversation starts right now. Stepping into my office today is Michael Clinton. Michael is the former president and publishing director of Hearst Magazines. His story career includes his time as executive vice president at Condé Nast and publisher of GQ. He's also the author of the new book, Roar, Into the Second Half of Your Life Before It's Too Late. Michael, welcome to my office. So nice to be here. Thank you, Carrie. Thanks for having me today. Oh, gosh, I am thrilled to have you join me. And it is an exciting time for you, a bit of a career transition, a brand new book coming out. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I love to say is that I hate the word retire. It is a, it's really a toxic word. And I've sort of coined the word rewire. You know, we all have to re be thinking about what's going to happen next. And so um, one of the things that I did with this book is interview 40 people who had an amazing pivot in what I'll call the second half of their life. Great inspirational stories. Um, I have my own rewire, which I'm doing, which included writing this book. But, you know, what's great is if you're 45 and you're healthy today, you're probably going to live to be 90. So that is a long stretch of making sure that you're having, you know, multiple careers and experiences and lives and lifestyles. So it's it, there's a lot happening when you get into that second half moment of your life, a lot of work and excitement. For sure. And and let's dive into a little bit more of that in just a couple of minutes, because what I what I kind of want to do first, though, is back up, because from the outside looking in, you've had this really fantastic career. Uh, you've sat in charge of some really illustrious companies, if you will. Um, but you grew up in Pittsburgh, which to most people is known as Steel City, but it's also really a breeding ground for a lot of amazing talent. You've got uh, Mark Cuban, Andrew Carnegie, Andy Warhol. Uh, I think Dan Marino, if you're a football fan, comes to mind. Indeed, indeed. Right? So yeah. I'm- Tony I'm, Dorsett, I'm, let's not forget Tony Dorsett. Oh, right, right. I My brother, when we were growing up, was uh, always a Miami Dolphins fan. Um, which is fine, except for we were a Green Bay Packer family. So I'm not sure how that ever worked out. Uh, he's kind of come around full circle now and is now, of course, on board the, the frozen tundra bandwagon. But what was that like for you growing up in Pittsburgh? Well, you know, first of all, we were a um, we were sort of a poor working class family. We were six kids. And my best friend actually was a guy named Dennis Miller, who you may know, the comedian who lived behind us. He had a family of five. We were a family of six. Dave Lewandowski, the football coach, lived also down across the street. So we were saying maybe it was something in the water in that neighborhood that let us sort of propel our way forward. But it was, uh, you know, Pittsburgh at the time was a, you know, we're a working class steel mill town. My dad was a laborer. My mother was a housewife. Not a lot of uh, money around, but, you know, they were fantastic. They were turned us on to art exhibits and culture and library and books. And so, you know, it was a great way for me to think about what was out there 
I'm the first person in my family to go to college and both sides of the family. And I went cross town to the University of Pittsburgh to study economics and political science. And while I was there, I said I loved I ended up being the head of the university newspaper. I said, I like this publishing thing. And how do I make a career out of this? And someone said, well, you got to go to New York. <laughs> so $60 in my pocket and a couch to sleep on for a couple of months and no contacts. And I arrived and there wasn't a lot of takers in the beginning, you know, because I was, <laughs> I was new to the, uh, but I was a, you know, a young kid with, you know, ambition and, you know, all that stuff. And I kind of found my way. And so luck and timing and skill and all the above. And so I love to say to people, it doesn't matter where you come from, regardless of where you are in your life, you can always find a path, whether you're 22 or 42 or 62. So, um, but yeah, you mentioned the Steelers, you know, we did have one indulgence in the family. We had Steelers season tickets, which we've had for 50 years in the family. So, um, you know, now the uh, third, I think it's the third generation is enjoying them. So it is a sports town, as you know, but those poor pirates. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, yeah, you can't win them all. We we as well. I come from, uh, like I like I said, we're a big Packer family, but my parents were on the waiting list for season tickets at Lambeau Field for 33 years. And wow. they finally got them probably, I think it would have been about 15 years ago. And by that point, my dad was old enough that, you know, he would always multitask and he'd have Max McGee on WNFL on the radio and he'd have it turned on in the kitchen. And he was like, I don't know, everything's so high end now. I kind of like watching the games from home. So they would still go to the occasional games, but it's the one thing it's so, and we're so off topic, but I'd be interested to know if the Steelers are the same that with Packer season tickets, you can put them in your will. So it goes, yeah. it stays in your family. Same thing. And, you know, we, you know, the glory days of the Steelers, of course, when Terry Bradshaw and Mean Joe Green and all those players, you know, that was when I was a young guy. So prior to that, you know, the Steelers really came into their own then. And as you know, they tie uh, the Patriots in terms of Super Bowl wins. So um, drum roll, please. But yeah, no, it's, um, they can be you. passed on. Yeah, they can be passed on. Yeah, which which makes it fun and also a really tough ticket uh, in town to get. So that's awesome. That's quite a legacy. Well, Michael, you know that on this on this podcast and talking about topically, one of the things that I always find fascinating about people from all walks of life, whether we're talking to executives or high performing athletes, whatever the case may be, other authors, the mechanics of of high performance of success and failure and even what it takes to reach peak performance what did you find not only from your own personal success but the teammates that you worked with what were some of those things that you saw in people historically over the course of time that always served them well regardless of change regardless of uncertainty or even really catastrophic setbacks sometimes yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. I think that, you know, one of the things I would say is I always kept my Pittsburgh in me. When I was very young, I was, a, I was the young publisher of GQ magazine, the youngest publisher in the industry at the time. And, you know, I, you can get a little full of yourself. And someone who was the elder statesman said, you have to remember one thing. It's the seat you sit in. It is not who you are. And that always stuck with me because people who get into leadership seats, C-suite seats, 
CEOs, anyone, you can become uh, very caught up in it. You can begin thinking that that's who you are, but it's really a seat that you represent. That's why I think so many leaders have a problem when they leave their power seats because they haven't thought through, you know, who are they outside of that seat? So I carried that with me always. And, you know, I had the good fortune of meeting, you know, all of our sitting presidents and being at the White House and being, you know, the Oscars and being at the Super Bowl and all the great trappings. And, you know, ultimately you have to realize that it's the seat you're in that is really what's taking you there. And when you keep that in perspective, I think that gets a lot of noise out of the system and allows you to really concentrate on doing the work, performing, et cetera. So that, that's one thing I would say, you know, right, right out of the gate. The other thing I would say is that, you know, people are people. And that sounds a little cliched, but leaders, C-suites, CEOs, they want you to be authentic and you have to also be authentic, you know, in terms of how you deal with them. And honesty and authentic and straightforwardness are always great character traits. And, you know, I'll once again say that was my Pittsburgh in me because that's how we were sort of taught and raised. And I think people really appreciate that. And that allows you to, once again, get through a lot of noise, to have high performance in the work that you do. But the kinds of people, to answer that question more broadly, the kind of people who I always hired and watched and I had the best uh, publishers in the industry. I mean, they were amazing performers. They're the kind of people who would walk through walls. They would always find the solution. They were always positive. They were always can do, and they were always resilient. And I think those are amazing qualities because ultimately you always have to increase performance on top of performance on top of performance. And so leading a high performance team, you also have to give them the latitude to let them be who, who they are. So as your leadership style over over the course of time, you're you're combining the the holding on to keeping the Pittsburgh in you to starting off as a business reporter. Uh, I think you moved into advertising and then you work your way, you earn your position in in what quite arguably could could be uh, categorized probably as one of the most powerful people in publishing. So was there ever a point in time that you had a bit of a, um, let's call it a reckoning, where somebody maybe close to you kind of just tapped you on the shoulder, yanked you back a little bit and said, I, I don't know if nobody's told you this yet, but you're going down the wrong path right now. You're, you're turning into a bit of a jack wagon. <laughs> maybe they didn't use those words exactly. Maybe it was a different word, but was there any any kind of point of inflection where you realized, ooh, I kind of went out on the on the diving board a little too far on that one? Yeah, I think a great um, a great way to frame that that answer is the importance of having a mentor. You know, I think that you adopt your mentor in a certain way. You you end up adopting the person who's going to look out for you. And I had a I've had a couple of really great mentors in my career, one in the early phase and one in the later phase. They moved me along, but they also kept me on the straight and narrow. So, you know, if I would, you know, sometimes when you're younger and you're, you're, you're in a hurry, you may say things that you're not thinking through what you're saying. And my first mentor, Jack Klieger, would pull me aside and say, you shouldn't approach it that way or you shouldn't talk about it that way. Um, here's another way to go at it. And I think those, those mentors who are there to help you along, you know, I was, fortunately, I never went off the diving board. 
you know, I was on the board, but I never quite, you know, jumped off. They kind of yanked me back before I did. Um, so there, there was nothing um, cataclysmic, fortunately, that was that was there that that would have been a derailing of my own self. But I really, I, to this day, I still rely on those two mentors. The second one is a woman named Kathy Black, who you might know. Kathy was always one of the top women in business. Um, Kathy was an amazing, uh, one of the top uh, Fortune uh, 50 women in business, you know, on the board of Coca-Cola, Notre Dame. I mean, an amazing, amazing woman. And she was my, my mentor. We worked together for 12 years. And she really taught me how to really be a world-class leader and a world-class executive to look at things, you know, from the 30,000 feet level. So I owe a lot to her in that second part of my career. Gosh, that's fantastic. And I think that's, you know, I, I'm not sure if you're seeing any of this or even in the conversations and it would be that you're having, it'd be interesting to even hear what Kathy would have to say about this right now, that there are obviously the last year, the last 15 months has been really challenging for a lot of people. Yet some of what I saw before we entered this this big overwhelming change piece of change in the pandemic was there seems to be a subset of people right now who want to fast track finding where's my mentor and if i just call and ask you to be my mentor you should coach me instead of necessarily understanding that most of the people that you're asking for their time to quote pick their brain or their partnership probably started off working in the ditch, probably started off in the back corner office and have this grounded nature or um, settled feeling or appearance or presence within them because they've worked in all the functional areas, they've done the work and they've earned those stripes. They didn't try to just hit the easy button to leapfrog into where they think they should be. So true, so true. Both of my mentors started from the ground up. Jack was the son of immigrants, and so he started literally selling classified advertising, you know, in the Village Voice. Uh, Kathy was the first female ad sales rep in a what was once upon a time a male-dominated industry, and she mm -hmm. had to really find her way to get to the first management role. She was also the first woman publisher of a magazine, New York Magazine which, you know, was quite a, uh, a feat in, in those days because she broke through the glass ceiling. They knew what it took to get to a place. And, you know, I think they saw they both saw something in me that they brought me along the way that I see things in people that I've mentored and brought along. I'm so proud of the people who I've been able to bring from, you know, the really beginnings of their career to now, you know, major senior leadership positions in publishing and media. And so I think we pay it forward that way. You identify who the talent is and they become yours, right? Mm -hmm, <laughs> they become mm -hmm. yours. Yeah, the paying it forward part, I call it putting the ladder down. Right. That if you've made it this far, the onus uh, and the responsibility is on you, I think, to, to do that, to identify, actively look for the really talented people, look for the people who are willing to do the work, are willing to invest in their own knowledge and put the time in. and. Yeah. Again, you, you, I think, use a phrase uh, within your book, and you talk about this idea of reimagining yourself, which, gosh, I would have to think even with Kathy and understanding the publishing industry, not nearly as well as you do, uh, but I've watched Mad Men, so 
I, I know that that side of the industry, and and clearly I came from a uh, pretty all male dominated environment as well. So let's talk about your book. Can we can we talk about your book for a second? Sure, love to. We'd okay, love to. so. I was able to get an advanced uh, reader copy. Some of your your well-heeled readers might know that as an ARC copy. And I'm really excited about it because I think you hit on some really, really um, important points, whether you're midlife, mid-career. I actually look at it because I've got a couple of brand new grads in my house as even all of these lessons applicable to a new graduate. But let's talk about the acronym ROAR, uh, which is your title of, of the book, and how you came about that. Yes, thank you. You know, one of the things that I wanted with this book was it to be filled with inspiration and lessons and resources and tools for a reimagined second half of one's life. And so ROAR is an acronym. R is the reimagining process. And reimagine yourself before someone else does it for you because life does throw curveballs at you. You might get laid off, you might, your partner might leave you, you know, all of those things. And are you really thinking about your favorite future? Own is own who you are, own where you come from, own your numbers, own your strengths, own your weaknesses, own your failures. I think it's really important that we own our failures and people learn from failures. A is act on the plan. You know, what's the, what's the focus? And I spend a lot of time talking about this concept called life layering which is something that I personally developed in my, when I was about 39 or 40, in terms of how you begin that process. And then the R is reassess your relationships because the people around you, whether it's your family, your friends, your community, your work, they're gonna be the ones that are gonna help facilitate and enable you to get to where you wanna go. So four, four letters, 12 chapters, easy read. It's not a big, it's not a textbook, right? You've read the book. It's not a heavy, heavy lift. It's very user-friendly. And I think that, um, you know, it's going to bring people a lot of, uh, of insight, especially now as we come out of post-COVID and everyone's be re has been rethinking what's next for me. The book is designed for that purpose. Oh, I think the timing of that could not be could not be any more on point. I think even, again, if you look back to April, uh, this last April of 2021, the numbers were higher than they ever have been of people who are, are um, intentionally opting out of the workforce or their job. And I think the numbers are stratospheric, or they were yeah. in April, of people who are currently actively looking for a different job, higher than they've ever been at any other point. So this is where, Michael, I look at your book and think, holy cats, this thing comes at a perfect time for all of that. And for people who are thinking, what's next? Okay, I, I get it. But what's like, what's the first thing I could do? And again, uh, selfishly, I look at this and go, ooh, this could actually be a really good book for graduates who are trying to figure out okay, I followed the plan. I, I, I made the Dean's list. I did all the things. Now I have to be an adult and there's no checklist. There's no path. There's no, ah, what do I do? So knowing that, so I kind of put two hats on this. So what would your advice be for people for, okay, take a breath. I, I always say, don't panic. Panicked people never make good decisions. What would you say is the first thing, the first action somebody could take to kind of tamp down some of that fear and angst. 
Good, good question. I think the first thing that you have to do is recognize and acknowledge that you want to make a change. Because all the people that I talked to for this book, it is a bit of a process. You know, they, they realized that they needed to change. I, I, I interviewed an amazing woman named Michelle Morris, who is the mother of triplets, I might add, and was a single mother. And she decided that the next year of her life was going to be what she called the year of change. And she spent a year thinking through, really pulling apart, what is it that was, was meaningful to her? What is it that she felt brought her purpose and satisfaction? She, was, she had worked to raise her, her kids. They were all now pretty much coming out of college. And now it was kind of her time. And she decided to make a big pivot. And, you know, she explored for a year the things that were of interest to her. So this doesn't happen overnight. You have to set yourself on a, on a journey, on a path. But first, you have to acknowledge and recognize that you want that change. And by the way, it can be in work. It could be where you live. It could be your partner. It could be any of those things. But the acknowledgement has to come first. And then you begin begin the process. So that's that's number one. And that's a challenge, of course, I think, for the overwhelming majority of people because you're going to feel vulnerable. It feels risky. And clearly, as you know, not only from your business and your life experience, if you don't take an action, if you don't take a little bit of time to think about that, the years can click by and you can get stuck in what can feel like a really intractable, intractable position, intractable. Why does that not sound right to me right now? Um, you can get stuck. Yeah, you can get stuck. <laughs> Yeah, I had the good fortune of being on the team that launched Oprah's magazine, you know, which mm -hmm. was the most successful magazine launch in history. I mean, it was just spectacular. And this was 21 years ago. And one of the things that Oprah always said, because I you know, listened to her many, many times in different formats and forums, is that it all starts with this little voice in the back of your head. And then the voice gets louder and louder and louder. And you can choose to ignore it. But if you choose to ignore it, it's not a good thing for you. And so you know instinctively in your own mind when something is really emerging and you can tamp it down or you can act on it. And I think it's, you know, we all, we all have to act on it. I think it's, it's important. There's a book that I referenced in the book called Five Regrets of the Dying, which you might remember. Mm. It was written by mm. a hospice nurse. It's an amazing book because she would listen to people as they were leaving leaving Earth. And she put all the major themes together. And one of the great themes that she she talks about is when an individual said, I wish I had been more true to myself. Mm. I wish I had listened to my own voice, that this is what I needed to do, that I needed to change a career, that I needed to do something that was was going to make me happier and more fulfilled or all of the things that are really important to us individually. You're right. A lot of us put things on the on the on the side burner and then they kind of fester and fester and fester. You know what? One of the things we were talking about is I've been to 124 countries. So I started my passion of traveling the world when I was very young. And you hear people say, yeah, I want to travel. You know, we really want to travel. But they just say we want to travel. They don't do it. So mm -hmm. you can get very frustrated if you don't actually put a plan in place to go and, and go and do it. 
I'd be curious to know, I think I've had, I've had the benefit of being able to travel quite a bit as well. Uh, I promise you, if I started putting pins in a map out domestically, if I included domestically, maybe I'd probably hit 124 places easily. Uh, internationally, I for sure have not been to 124 countries. One of the things that I have found, and not to go too deep down this rabbit hole, but after spending time over in Asia, over in Europe, over even in, in the Middle East, I think one of the most valuable things, and you ran Condé Nast, but the, one of the most valuable things that I have found in travel is that it develops your ability to take a different perspective and one that is other than focused, other than me, because you see so much of what's happening that you know, I grew up in a time where National Geographic was was the thing in our household. We had stacks of National Geographic. So you learn so much about different cultures from National Geographic. Again, I'm a little bit older than maybe some people who are listening to this. What, what, did, what have you found to be the benefit to travel? Yeah, you know, I think that aside from the obvious of being bombarded by all the unique cultures is you really learn empathy. Mm -hmm. You really do learn empathy for the human condition, the human spirit. You also learn that the human condition is one of, it's universal because mm -hmm. what do people want? People want safety. People want their families to be secure beyond the basics of, you know, shelter and food and, and those things, but they want a better life for their family. That is universal. I've seen that whether I've been in Madagascar or Nepal or in, in any parts of Asia. And that's really, you know, a great, a great eye opener. You, you also see that, you know, in America, we take so much for granted that so many other people don't have just, you know, basic freedoms to, you know, speak our peace, the First Amendment, basic freedoms to, you know, be able to do and become who we want to become. And you really get the perspective that we live in a very special country in a very special place that we should always be thankful for. And I think travel brings that brings that out, especially when you're in in places that are, are third world places. And I think that's one of the things getting back to your book to roar. It's I, I think there are probably a lot of people right now who even globally, as we're dipping in and out of uh, the pandemic and lockdowns and coming out of it, and what are things going to look like, that there are still going to be a lot of people just just they're so close to taking that next step, but somehow they feel, feel, I think they feel as though they need permission, permission to change, permission to swap lanes, permission to leave maybe a relationship that's not serving them, not to get too meta on any of that. And, and knowing that this does go back to deciding what does success look like for you, not from a material perspective, just from a life satisfaction perspective. And I think you've done such a great job in, in this book to lay out a possible path forward that I even find it, and I'm so sorry, this may drive the professional publisher in you crazy, that you can almost start anywhere in the book. Okay, maybe read the intro, but it's not something that is so prescriptive that you have to start at page one. And if you miss 17 through 27, well, 
might as well not even finish reading it because now it's not going to be worthwhile. I think it's so beautifully laid out and spectacularly helpful. Thank you. That's really wonderful to get that feedback from you. So I, I appreciate it. You know, one of the things, the book is really targeted to 40 to 60 year olds, but to your point earlier, I've heard a lot of 20 somethings tell me if they've had a chance to read it, how helpful it was for them just to mm -hmm. form, formulate their thoughts. But the, the thing that's so interesting, and it's one of the themes in the book is, you know, we live in a culture that as people are living longer, we, we live in a culture that tends to be ageist. And so mm -hmm. we create self-imposed ageism on ourselves. And we say, for example, well, I can't do that because I'm 50 or I can't do that because I'm 60. And what I like to say is forget about age appropriate and think about person appropriate. Women are giving birth at 50 and having children at 50. People are going back to university in their 60s. I, I'm in my 60s. I just graduated from Columbia University with a master's degree. It was an amazing you know, life learning experience. People are falling in love and getting married at 90. I mean, you know, why do we limit ourselves? And I think part of it is throwing off this self-imposed ageist thinking that we we all kind of cloak ourselves in that, you know, when we're a certain age, we can't do a certain thing. One of the things which you might remember in the book is when I turned 60, I went to Antarctica and ran a marathon. And, you know, people were like, wow, that's amazing. And I said, yeah, but you, when I ran the Toronto Marathon, I watched the first 100-year-old man cross the finish line at eight hours and 11 minutes. So like, you know, my 60-year-old experience was great, but wow, look at that guy who's 100. So, you know, there's a lot that we can do that we, if we stop and think and put our minds to it. I also like to say, forget the words midlife crisis and focus on midlife awakening. Because, you know, you've lived, if you're 50, you've lived 25 years as an adult. You've learned a lot about yourself, wisdom, experience. Like, let that be your, your launch pad for the next thing. Because you know what you like and you know what you don't like. Um, so it's not a crisis. It's really an awakening. So, you know, embrace the awakening and move, move forward. So, you know, these are things, as you know, I touch on in the book as part of the storytelling. Absolutely. And I think it's such an important conversation as well, because not from a victimhood perspective or people thinking, oh, you know, it's not fair. I'm, you know, maybe I am 50, maybe I'm 55 or somebody else was better resourced. Somebody else got a luckier break when they were 35. Look at what they have. Life is so easy for them. And yet there is the other side of that coin that feels like ageism is one of the most tolerated isms out there. You know, it's pretty easy, well, easy air quotes around that to call out sexism or racism, but we still are living in a world where I think, you know, selfishly, particularly for women, older part is a little more difficult uh, because, you know, as the old sage goes, it's it's easy to see the handsome, distinguished gentleman from the Hamptons. Um, but but we have a different standard, I think, even for women. And, and you can look that in different industries even. When and how do you think that'll change? I do think we're making some inroads for sure. But I think it's still a, for businesses out there and for the regular person, it's still a limiting belief that's holding people back. Absolutely. You, you sort of touched on it. You know, re, we're all going to have a universal experience, regardless of our gender, our ethnicity, our race, our beliefs, our religious beliefs, our political beliefs. And what is that? 
we are all going to age. There are two universal experiences. One, hopefully you will age. And two, we are all going to leave planet Earth at some point. That's going to happen. And so from that standpoint, it is going to be a reframing of what the 50 plus world is going to look like. Here are a few stats that will really surprise you. In 2019, there were 90,000 people in America who were 100 years old or older. In 2060, there will be almost 500,000 people who will be 100 years or older. We are going to live longer as a people. And what's going to be interesting is with fertility rates being so low, which I'm sure you're also reading about, Mm -hmm. not in the U.S., but globally, the older population is going to be more and more what will be the population. What's also going to happen is the reimagined people who are now pioneering that that path are the ones who are going to redefine what it means to live longer and live different kinds of lives. So everything's going to be blown up that we knew, that traditional patterns of what we knew as we were aging are going to change dramatically because of these these pioneers and these reimagineers who were doing things in their 50s, 60s, 70s that our parents and our grandparents, you know, never even dreamed that they would would do. And so our role models are going to be, you know, people, I mean, look at, you know, Jennifer Lopez, look at Sting, mm-hmm. look at, you know, these amazing athletes who are masters athletes. They're going to really show us how we can live in a different kind of way. The other thing that I'll say, which would be interesting to your listeners, is that by the year 2032, half literally half of the economy is going to be driven by people 50 plus. And that is going to create a huge change in products and in ways that things are marketed. And right now you want to, you know, if you look at images of 50 plus individuals in the media and in advertising, it is pathetic because it is all about people aging and ailing and having problems. I'm really proud. Um, we had on Harper's Bazaar, one of our magazines, we had Jane Fonda on the cover. She's 83 years old and she's an amazing 83 year old um, woman. We also on Esquire had Justin Thoreau, 50 and Chris Rock, 56. And so a celebration of what it all means. But marketers who and, and brand leaders who don't pay attention to this are going to really left behind because the 50 plus consumer is not brand loyal anymore. You're no longer a, you know, it used to be once you had your brand in place at a certain age, you stayed with that for your whole life. Now all, all bets are off. So think about Tesla, you know, the Tesla uh, consumer, you know, a lot of them are 50 plus. They've all left, you know, and are leaving traditional automotive brands that they may have bought or just think across all of the brand platforms. And so leaders in the marketing world, the brand world have to like wake up. They really need a reckoning on this whole cohort, which is growing fast and has huge economic clout. So it's all going to change as people as people live longer. Well, the clout piece of it is is so spot on, and and you would think that the the money talking piece of that would start already lead turning people into changing what is out there. I think it's been fascinating even to watch. Um, not to again, not to digress, but Kate Winslet has been spectacularly vocal about she's had such wicked success with her uh, mayor of Mayor yeah, of Easton, right? They were trying to Photoshop a lot of, you know, the billboards and the ads, and she kept pushing back going, I know where the wrinkles are on my face. And when you think about that, that's somebody who also, for those of you who don't know, is a, a Lancome model, right? right? Who 
is clearly marketed in a, in a different package. But now I think, I believe she's 48 and now she's getting to that point as well, where she's like, listen, I've got this huge body of work. I'm uber talented. Leave a wrinkle on my face for Pete's sake. Like right. I've earned that. Stop it. But yet then you see the other side of 25 year old influencers using their eye serum and their face cream. And I'm like, you are 25 years old. Like put a baseball hat on. What, what I'm going to buy wrinkle cream from a 25 year old. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, I digress. However, there is a point to this because in your book, you actually do start talking about some of the different levers of if we are going to be performing at a really high level uh, at 50, at 55, at 60, 65, 75, those things maybe hopefully your grandma or your peepaw told you 30 years ago of you need to drink water, you need to eat your fruits and vegetables, you need to sleep this whole hustle culture and grind until, you know, hey, look, I'm on my second month of only getting four hours a night of sleep. Well, you're operating like a drunk monkey and you're actually changing the makeup in your cells, right? My words, not yours. But you you line out some other books, some other really good resources and some insight on what is it going to take to feel good, to, to maybe look better, but more importantly, to to feel comfortable and live the life that you want. And that's going to take a plan. And it's going to take a bit of a reckoning of maybe looking at some of those habits, whether it's your sleep, managing your diet a little bit differently, maybe thinking about an exercise or a workout routine. I love that you talked about numbers and finance, particularly since there has been such a massive upheaval of 401ks, pension plans, retirements, people hopping from business to business, going into the gig economy. So all of that being said, how do you advocate for people when that all feels overwhelming or, or undoable? Again, this goes back to where do you start with it? You know, there's a chapter in the book called Own Your Numbers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the numbers are, and I'll rattle the four categories and then I'll come back to it. So health, obviously, health, wealth, well-being, financial well-being, goals, and the big number, which is your exit number, meaning, you know, you're going to exit someday and are you prepared for it in all the ways that you should be prepared for it. So it is shocking to me when I talk to a 50-year-old and I say, what is your cholesterol? And they have no idea. Or what is your, have you had a colonoscopy? No. You know, when was the last time you had your annual physical? Well, I haven't. And, you know, basic fundamental health numbers and knowing you know, what your numbers are and what your issues are is sort of, you know, foundational. Because if you want to live and you want to live a long life, that's, that's you know, health is always, it's, it's kind of a cliche, but it's true. The other part of it is what is your number for your financial well-being? You know, how do you want to live? And if you thought that through and do you have the financial underpinnings and if not, how do you get there? And not everyone wants, you know, to live in a mansion. And that's, you know, what is, what is your choice? And so how do you want to live and how are you going to get there? And so the calculations of getting there in terms of, of income and, and that outcome is important. Obviously, all of that is tied up into how you set your goals to get there. And then finally, it is also shocking how many people like to avoid, you know, we have a thing in our culture where we're death phobic. And, you know, you have to sort of have your house in order 
in terms of wills and estates and, you know, do not resuscitate if that's what you choose, or do you want a big party when you go, or do you want everybody sort of being solemn? But, and is your, is your partner aware of the, the financial obligations? You know, there are many couples where either the, the husband has the financial, you know, handles all the financials or the wife handles all the financials, but the two of them aren't talking. So, they, you know, they need to know, everybody needs to know, you know, where does it stand? So some real basic fundamentals about getting your, let's call it your personal house in order. And it's not that complicated. You just have to really mm -hmm. focus on it and really pay attention to it. And, um, you know, that is a that is a really good start to get you. So it's the own your numbers chapter that you're meant that you talked about. Right. And I so appreciate you having that piece of the conversation because I agree. I don't I don't know what it is, particularly in the U.S., that that talking about money outside of you're a rapper because they all like to talk about their money and, and that's great for them. But we don't we are a society that does not like to talk about our money or think about money to the extent with which the overwhelming of Americans with kids 18 years and younger don't have a will. Right. and having lot and and you can you can find forms online that will work it, it doesn't have to t cost you two hundred dollars necessarily if your your quote estate isn't super complex to at least put something down and and certainly I, i've lost both of my parents now and when my mom my dad passed away first and when my mom then passed away she had most things uh, pretty much taken care of and lined out, but there were there were a couple of other uh, cats and dogs, shall we say, that somehow either there wasn't a name or there wasn't a power of attorney on it, and then that stuff goes right into probate, right? right. It, to you know, and then the state, whatever state you live in, is going to hold on to it for six months, and they're going to take a big chunk out of. It doesn't matter if it was two hundred dollars value or or you know. $20,000 or a million dollars. And from a personal responsibility, again, that's that you're having this finance conversation, I think is so important to take the emotion out of that. I always tell people from a business perspective, if you don't know your numbers, you don't know your business. And this is such a perfect segue of if you don't know your numbers, you don't know your body. If you don't know your numbers, um, you, you, you could leave. Future. You yeah. don't know your future. That's right, and it's hard to make a plan. No wonder you feel so right. uncertain and discombobulated by it. So, so that's such a that is such a, a profoundly, I think, impactful chapter. And I really appreciate I really appreciate you taking the time to do that, as well as the health and fitness piece of it. You know, you don't have to. You don't have to. I've got a friend of mine that I interviewed, Len Anderson, uh, is rounding the corner on fifty, and just two years ago after never riding more than a stationary bike has now all of a sudden started training for Ironmans and triathlons and is now like a top ranked triathlete. Um, but two years ago, he had never even done much even on like a bike that actually covers territory across the ground. So this is possible, you know, yeah. a, a better place of possibility is there for you. And I think you've done such a wonderful job in Roar of giving people a roadmap of here are some of those areas that if you take action on or reflect on or think about, you can find yourself in a better, more valuable, even more healthy place than where you are today. And yeah. I love that. Absolutely. Love that. Absolutely. And thank you. And I think it is true that you can start fitness regimen, you can start a health regimen, 
any point. One of the, the points in the book is that today it begins. And so forget what was, today it begins. You're 50, you're 60, you're 70, begin. And you know, one of the great little stories in the book was a couple, you may remember the story, it was an NPR interview. And he was 107 and she was 104 and they were a new couple. <laughs> they just started dating. Today it begins, you know, and here they were finding romance and love, you know, at over a hundred. And it was a really, you know, wonderful, poignant interview. And, which is referenced in the book, and you, someone mm -hmm. can tap into it and hear it. But you always have to think about that possibility that is there in front of you in all aspects of your life at any at any point in any age. So yeah, well well uh, well said. I love that. Today it begins. I feel like you need to make some stickers or zappers on, on <laughs> that. Just or, or put it on a post-it note, right? Just so every day today we got another yeah. shot. If you if you woke up and your feet hit the ground today. You've got a shot at this. And, you know, I love it because before before we hopped on, before we started recording, um, we were chatting a little bit about uh, a mutual friend of ours, Allison Levine. And, you know, I think we're so fortunate, too, that you are able to get to a point in your life that you are able to be a little more maybe selective. Would that be a good word that and understanding the value of having really good, really positive people in in your life and i know allison with for those people who aren't aren't aware of who she is she's she scaled all of the big seven summits across the world she has skied the north and south pole she's a new york times bestseller she's just an amazing amazing person uh did some adjunct professorship work at, at the with a thayer leadership group and you know what allison is one of those people too who will lend her courage to you when you need it or when she thinks you need it. And, you know, when you, when you hit 50, you, you might have a little more of that to give to somebody else than maybe you actually think you do or you realize. So it, it, it's so true. First of all, our yeah. friend Allison is an incredible human being. And I'm always inspired when I talk to her. And she's always so positive and optimistic, which which I love. You know, you mentioned this, uh, I'm in the publishing business. So a very important word in our world is edit. You're always mm -hmm. editing, you're editing visuals, you're editing words, you're editing paragraphs. And so I like to say the concept of editing should be in your life too, because you have to edit out the people who are negative and toxic and not on team you, Y-O-U. And we all know those people. As you get older, you realize the people that have meaning for you and bring you joy and satisfaction. And so you making those tough decisions about who's no longer going to be in your life and amplifying those who, who are. And I think you also have to have friends of, at every age, because what happens is when people are 60 and 70, they end up having 60 and 70 year old friends. And you need friends in their 20s and their 30s and their 80s and their 90s and, you know, perspective and, um, you know, really. So editing, editing your posse and your, your group that is going to be around you, I think, is so, is so critical. So someone like Allison, it's always a joy when I get to spend time with her or talk to her, um, as well as my other cool, great, fun friends. Yeah, she's, she's fabulous. Well, and I think uh, I love that. I love that callback. And oh, I wish I would have said it, how you're saying about editing, because it's, it's so true. And the, I think Brene Brown calls it... Um, who are the people who are going to make your stamp 
right? Like who are your stamp friends? and and making sure that in this world of disconnection and even technology i think even though there are going to be a lot of people who are still probably doing the work from home journey right now um that we actually maybe pick up the phone and talk to people and not just send a text Uh, again not to go down a rabbit hole there but it we can do that i think as you probably found in your research there's a certain age i'm not sure what the number is that your circle of friends the number of friends drops off precipitously which then can lead to a lot more isolation and depression and feelings of hopelessness or this is all there is right yeah. instead of expansion and abundance yeah. and yeah. hey we we can't hike all of patagonia but we can take a walk in the woods right together or hobble through the woods so i'm just i'm so excited about this book michael i i know it's going to be so impactful for so many people and it's such a treasure i'm thank you for taking the time to put put pen to paper or fingers to keyboard and uh gathering all of this it's it's fantastic I really appreciate your great, wonderful feedback and the great conversation we had. I mean, we talked, to, we sure did cover the waterfront. So we, talk, we talked about a lot of things. Thanks so much for your wonderful feedback. And it's such a pleasure to be with you today. Oh, for sure. Well, hey, one of the one of the last things I usually do, if you were game for this, is just a speed round of five rapid fire questions. So let's do it. No wrong, all right. No wrong answers. This is this will just be a little bit fun. Uh, what is your go-to music to listen to when you work out? When I work out, um, probably something like Bruno Mars. Well, dance beat. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Now, my second question was, who do you think of as a mentor? But you already covered that. And you also covered what you need to learn from them. Unless you have a third mentor you want to throw throw into the those, ring. Those are my great my great mentors. So I would okay. say, and I would add my dad to that. My dad, who is, you know, mm-hmm. 89, who is my go-to guy for all things in life. And so the book is dedicated to him as well. Mm-hmm. I love yeah. that. That's beautiful. Yeah. What is the biggest misperception of you? That's a great question. The biggest misperception of me is that I Probably that I can do everything and anything because everyone always says, boy, you can do, you can do anything and everything. And that's absolutely not true. There are many things I can't do. I'm just really good at (laughs) amplifying the things that I can do. (laughs) And clearly, clearly assembling a team of people who can do all those other things that then make everybody else look like a rock star. That's true. Thank you. (laughs) So that's awesome. Uh, Who will play you in a movie? Everyone says Justin Bateman. Oh, he is one of my favorites. You, I don't know if you see us. There's a similarity, but anyway, that's mm. okay. Well, I would have to put you on big screen and then probably pelt you with a few more super random questions to see if you couldn't do deadpan delivery like he oh, does. Right, right. Because I'm not sure there's anybody in the industry that can deliver a line with such deadpan. And he is he's amazing. I honest. Honest Pete, hand over heart. I think I've watched Ozark six times. I know, incredible. Half, yeah, half of which is because his delivery and it, he is just amazing. Yeah. He's amazing. I mean, the writing is spectacular as well, but he's awesome. So last question. We, so this is we, not just you, have $100, a full tank of gas, and we both have the day off. Where are we going? 
I would have to say that we're going to the ocean because um, we're going to drive to the nearest beach and we're just going to walk that that ocean beach and take in that great salt air. And, you know, it's the, the, the magic of the ocean. I'm fortunate that I live a few miles away from mm-hmm. the ocean. So I'm there literally every day um, in one form or another, if, I, if the weather's great. And even sometimes when the weather's not great, it's just one of those uh, spiritual places. Mm. 100% concur on that. There's there's almost nothing that can't be a problem that can either be solved or you have a better perspective after you walk a few miles with that salt in your hair and the crunch or the sand under your feet just to, again, it goes back to the perspective taking. Yeah, just, yep, keeping everything in perspective. So if people want to either get in touch with you or follow you on your journey, uh, where will they be able to find you? Social media, LinkedIn? Um, social media. I have an author's website, RoarByMichaelClinton.com. So there. Um, I'm on all the social media sites, you know, LinkedIn, Twitter, you know, Facebook, Instagram. Um, but the author's website, I think we're going to launch a newsletter in October to keep the conversation going. So I think that's probably the best first, uh, first stop. Perfect. Perfect. Well, Michael, thanks for carving out some time today to share your story, as well as uh, a few little insights into Roar. I know that this book is going to be uh, such an inspiration for those who are really looking to successfully step into the next chapter in their life. I know you didn't necessarily intend it to be for, for new graduates, but again, my closest alligator to the boat, I've got a couple in my household and uh, I think it's, it's going to be perfect for that demographic as well. It's, it's beautiful. Carrie, thank you. I really, really enjoyed our time together. And thank you for listening this week. If you enjoy the show, make sure you take a second to subscribe. So you automatically get my new shows when they drop. Also, if you enjoyed the conversation today, I'd love if you left us a review so that more fearless leaders like you can discover us. It takes less than 60 seconds and it really makes a difference. And I also love reading the reviews. And while you're at it, I'd love to hear from you personally on my social channels. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, maybe Clubhouse. And of course, you can always find me at carrielorenz.com. Finally, my new book, Span of Control, is out in the world and available on Amazon, iTunes, Audible, Target, Barnes & Noble, and always your favorite indie bookstore. And I'm super excited about this book. It's going to be extraordinarily helpful to you on a personal level, and it can help your family members, your friends, and the teams you lead or even coach identify their priorities, find focus, navigate obstacles, and find success, even during times of chaos, some uncertainty, and change. So once again, thank you for sharing your time with me today. I'm glad you're here.